Let's make our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. And uh, before we dive into that, uh, let me just pray over us as we think about this Memorial Day weekend. And, uh, you know, we've got an awful lot to be thankful for. We also get to express our liberties in Christ because there were those that were willing to give their liberties uh, up for us. So, Father, we just thank you. And we praise you for the brave men and women that gave their lives so that we can be sitting in a place just like this on a beautiful Sunday morning at the end of May and get to praise your name and freedom. And so, Father, would you help us to not take that for granted and uh, just continually give thanks ultimately to you, Lord, for all that you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, we are going to in a minute pick up in verse 1, and we'll cover the first 16 verses of this chapter this morning. But as you guys make your way to that spot in Scripture, let me just remind you where we've been up to this point. That the letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, and through the first six chapters, he spent time addressing issues that were raised by a lady named Chloe and her household. These were issues predominantly around a division. There was divisiveness in the church. People were were fractured. There were also immorality issues, but the first thing that Paul chooses to address is the divisiveness that had come up. And as he arrived in chapter 7, he then began to address the issues that were raised by church leadership. And so he spends six chapters talking about divisiveness and immorality, and then he digs into questions surrounding leadership within the church. Now remember the church in Corinth was a church that was made up of very different people, right? Culturally, they would have been Jews who grew up in a very strict religious household that came to know Christ. There were then also those that were Greeks, Gentiles, that came into the church, and they had lived a very loose, pagan lifestyle. And so you've got very different backgrounds that were coming together. And what Paul writes to them about is, look, in this you can find unity because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That You can have very diverse backgrounds, but you can have unity in the mind of Christ. And he writes this and also encourages them inside their own marriages to have unity. Because if ever there's a spot where divisiveness can rear its ugly head, it's when two very independent people then come together as one. And so Paul uses this as a springboard to encourage them in their marriages to be unified. Now from there in chapters 8 through 10, we see Paul over these last several weeks addressing liberties, that they've been freed in Christ Jesus. So what do they do with this newfound freedom? How does this look like? What does this look like in the Christian life and how does it play out? And what we see is that oftentimes a division can actually happen when we feel like our liberties have been stepped on by somebody else. We feel like our liberties have been infringed upon. There's this frustration that boils up. And so Paul addressing this, he says, look, here's the deal. We're free in Christ. You're free to experience all you desire to, all your heart's desire in Jesus, and yet uh, all things are lawful for me, is what he says in chapter 10, verse 23 to begin with. But he continues and says, but not all things build me up. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are edifying or beneficial. And so the 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 screen that Paul runs this through, the sieve that he processes this information through is, is simply this, that as I consider my liberties that I have in Christ, first of all, can I give thanks in this activity? Can I give thanks in this relationship that I'm entering in? Secondly is, can I glorify God in the midst of 
where I'm at? Is this a spot that I can glorify Him? And then thirdly, uh, will a brother or a sister in Christ be stumbled by this in any way, shape, or form? And so if the answer to these are yes and yes and no, then I'm at liberty as long as it builds me up. So that's what Paul is sharing with them. And as we arrive now in chapter 11, we're going to see over the next two weeks, Paul's going to address conduct and what it should look like within the church. And I do want to preface this beginning of the chapter with this, that um, as a Bible teacher, I, I get a, a choice on how we work through the material. And oftentimes, uh, when we come to a difficult passage or something of controversy, uh, the decision has to be made. Um, do we go through this passage uh, like you guys often go through Westfield? You know, where you're getting up on the edge of town, and you're like, you know what, enough of driving the speed limit, and you drop in the clutch, and you put it down into fifth gear, and you just fly up to the curves. You're like, I'm going to let it rip. You're 65 by the time you hit the first curve. That's oftentimes a, a way that a Bible teacher could approach controversial topics and sections of Scripture. The other way is you can take the Sunday afternoon stroll approach, where you just uh, pump the brakes a little bit, and you're like, you know what? This thing is going to be awkward. It's going to be awkward for all of us. We're just going to enjoy, we're going to revel in the awkward. And what I decided at studying through this this week is, this feels like a good section of Scripture to just revel in the awkward. So if this is hard for you, and you're uncomfortable, guess what? I'm uncomfortable too. We're going to enjoy the uncomfortability together. This is the freedom I have in Christ to decide that for all of us. So we're going to cover the first 16 uh, verses today where we talk about Head coverings. You guys have all wanted to know about head coverings. It's been on the tip of your tongue. You're like, I want to know if I should cover my head or not. And I'm excited. So welcome to Woodlawn Chapel, where we're going to talk about head coverings. But not to start off. So Paul's real driver at this, by the way, is all kidding aside, is he's going to address hierarchy and organization within the church and within the family structure. So that's really the underlying issues that Paul is trying to get at. But he begins in chapter 11, verse 1, by saying, Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Now, remember that as we read through this scripture, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He didn't put this in chapter and verse. He just simply wrote them a letter. In fact, all of your Bible didn't have chapter and verse until about 500 years ago. It was put there to help us reference material quickly. But for Paul, he's just writing a letter. And likely this would have gone better with chapter 10. But it is a good segue as Paul is coming off of this section talking about laying aside our Christian liberties. And we wonder, what does this look like? How would this play out in my life? And what Paul says is, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And what we find, and it's not ironic that we cover this uh, coming up on Memorial Day, is that the greatest expression of love that I can have for another is to actually lay my liberties aside and give myself for them. And that's precisely what Jesus did. That's the story of the gospel. That's the gospel message summarized. He, He laid aside his freedom so that you and I could be free. So how does it Look, how would this play out practically in my life? What Paul says here in verse 1 is, if you want to know what this looks like in a life, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Watch what I'm doing, follow me. Now for many of us, immediately, I'm starting to get a little uncomfortable right now. Who am I to say imitate me as I imitate Christ? I, I don't know if I stack up. I've got all my struggles, my list of issues. But understand this, that Jesus 
intentionally gave us His Holy Spirit so that you and I would be vessels for kingdom purpose. That the kingdom expansion plan actually resides in you. When you go somewhere, when you enter into a relationship, when you make your way into any spot you go, you are Jesus with skin on, whether you realize it or not. What Paul says in Colossians 1.27 is that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so when we're in that awkward spot and you're going, what am I doing here? It's very likely that in the place that you're in, you might be the only Jesus these people will ever come into contact with. And so we have this unique opportunity. But for most of us, we, we begin to immediately think about our own shortcomings and then even say, if I tell someone to imitate me, what about my mistakes? What do I do with all the things that I don't get right? Uh, Jimi Hendrix, which uh, hopefully all of you know, you young kids, uh, you, can, you can check it out. Uh, check with your parents before you check out Jimi Hendrix. But Jimi Hendrix, one of the greatest guitar players uh, to ever live before he tragically died at the age of 28, uh, he was copied, imitated by so many people with his style and the way he played guitar that what he famously said is that he'd been imitated so many times that people were even copying his mistakes. And isn't this how we often feel, right? If I tell people to imitate me, what happens if they imitate my mistakes? And what I want to share with you is uh, one of the ways that we become the most endearing to people as Christians is to be real. And when folks come in here and they don't know the Lord or they're new in Christ or they've been struggling a little bit, immediately they look at everybody else and assume they got it all together. They've got it way better than me. Their life is perfect. Who am I to be walking into this place? And so we immediately have our antenna up that everybody else has got this figured out but me. But when we let our guard down and we share with people our struggles, our challenges, the things that we're working through, that Jesus is working through in us, we immediately become real. It becomes someone we can relate to. They go, I get that. I can relate to that. And that is not to make a, a pass or a justification for my failure. What it does is it points to the justifier. Romans chapter 3, verse 26 says that Christ Jesus is both the just and the justifier. He is bigger than all of my mistakes. He is big enough to take care of, to wipe all those things out. So even in the midst of my struggles, what I find is it gives me an opportunity to point to the king and say that, you know, I, I don't have this thing figured out, but I know somebody who does. And I, I get to share with them and actually walk in this relationship with them and show how we can approach the king of kings and talk to him through our struggles and our challenges. And so here's the reality of the evangelical outreach plan of the church. If you wonder what our plan is, here it goes. You. You're the evangelical outreach of the church. Not me. We don't bring people to church so a preacher can save them. I mean, I'd love to walk somebody through the Roman road and lead them to salvation. It's, it's the greatest honor I've ever personally experienced. And yet, I don't have the access you have. I don't have the access to the people, to the workplaces, to the families. I've not invested all the time, and I'm only one person. And so God's plan for multiplying the church was disciples making more disciples. So as Jesus gives us His Holy Spirit for power, it's so that we can be witnesses to Him and get to go to those places to share with people. And so as we see in the form of Christ, as he, we imitate Him, He was willing to lay down His life, not only His life, but His authority, so that you and I can have life. And that's the Gospel message. It's a beautiful thing. So we continue now with verse 2. 
Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And so Paul knows a lot about leadership. Uh, Leadership 101, most of you know, you start with a compliment. Tell them how great of a job they just did at something. He then continues with uh, the word we all knew was coming, but. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And so what Paul now is going to do is address issues, things that they need to work on within the church. And specifically, what he gives us here in verse 3 is a, a hierarchy for the church, a hierarchy for our families. And so what he says is Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. And before anybody gets upset, may get a little bit frustrated and start to squirm in our chair, notice what he continues here in verse 3. And the head of, excuse me, and the head of Christ is God. And so when we find ourselves in a spot where we're a little bit upset about the position or the place that we have, uh, please note that as Christ is the head of man, that the head of Christ is the Lord Himself, is God, is God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 is where I'll go as we look at this relationship. I lost Philippians. I know what's in here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So as I just explained that the head of Christ is God, notice with me what this verse 6 says, that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was not inferior to God. Just because he submitted his authority to him, they were on an equal playing field. Verse 8, we continue, but being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So him giving up his authority, him giving up his liberties, this wasn't a measure of who's superior to one to another, but this was actually an expression of power through humility. That by being uh, humble, by allowing himself to essentially be humiliated, he was lifted up on high. Verse 9 continues, Therefore God has given, has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And so through submission, he's actually exalted. And there's freedom in the midst of this. And I, I want to explain this and express this as carefully as I can without getting too much hate mail. Um, there is freedom in a man realizing that his authority comes from Christ Jesus. Because oftentimes, as the leader of my household, I don't always know what to do. I don't always know which direction to go, what I should choose, which which is right, what's wrong, but I know that I can rely upon Him. And similarly, for the female in this relationship, for the wife, there is actually freedom that exists in trusting your husband. As he follows after Christ, you then follow Him. There is actually freedom in that kind of direction. It's it's not a matter of contention here because all this is following hard after God himself. And so as we align ourselves, there's a tremendous amount of freedom in this relationship, but not one of superiority or inferiority. All right, let's continue. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered 
dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. And so Paul is now addressing the cultural issue of head coverings. And what it's important to understand is that in this Greco-Roman culture, uh, they didn't deal with right or wrong like we do in our culture. We see everything as this is right and this is wrong. Uh, They were an honor and shame culture. And really, this is how our culture was until about 100 years ago. I'll get more into this in a minute. But what we find is in their culture, a woman would wear a head covering or a veil, and it was a symbol of being married, similar to wearing a wedding ring. And so they were identifiable as a married woman. It was a respectful way to show that she'd submitted her authority to her husband as she wears a head covering. Furthermore, when a woman had a shaven head or she had no hair on top of her head, it was a way to identify what her employment was. That she was, in fact, one who worked in the temple of Aphrodite as a temple priestess, which also meant she was a temple prostitute. And so what Paul is writing to this Corinthian church about is there are ladies that are now praying and prophesying within their church with their heads shaved who had either were currently temple prostitutes or had previously been temple prostitutes. And either way, this was very confusing for this mixed bag of both pagan and Jewish believers. They were looking at this and going, wait a minute, is it? Is it okay for me to visit the temple prostitutes? Is it not okay? What is God saying? And so it was causing a tremendous mix-up. It was causing confusion in the church. And what Paul is writing about is that this isn't for the purpose of causing confusion. That just because you want to shave your head, if it's going to confuse people, what's going to happen is it's going to distract them from the main thing, which is the main thing, and that is Jesus. This is what happens so often when we get ourselves out of order when we get things out of balance with what the Lord wants, is that we lose track of what is the main thing. It's not head covering or not head covering. It's that it all points back to Christ Jesus. Now, as we continue in verse 7, For a man, indeed, ought to not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And so what we see here in these verses, again, is this hierarchy, but it's done from a place of humility. That this is actually a a spot that we can exist in humility and have power to be raised up, to be glorified. Did you catch that with me? That for the woman, she is the glory of the man. That word there in the Greek means literally she is the outshining of her husband. She's to be this this beautiful display of a virtuous woman. What what Solomon would write in Proverbs 31, verse 25, is that she is strength and honor or her clothing. She shall rejoice in the time to come. She should be strong and honorable, the outshining of her husband. And as I spent this uh, last week, three days of it in Las Vegas at at a conference, I couldn't get this out of my head as I was reading through this. And so forgive me uh, for little Tom Jones. But she's called to be a lady. Whoa, 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 she's a lady. Talking about the little lady. And the lady is mine. Right, she's called to be a lady. Beautiful and uplifted, the outshining of her husband. And when I say that, I want to explain 
that men, uh, when you speak about your spouse, that means that's a reflection upon you. And who among us would speak ill of ourselves, right? And so as I speak about my wife, am I speaking in an uplifting way? Because I'm really ultimately reflecting her. And so as husband and wife are called to be together, it's not to be in competition with one another. It's to actually be the completion of one another. That's God's desire in this relationship. Now, verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Well, that's easy enough. If that doesn't clear it all up, I don't know what does. This is all because of the angels. So you guys are welcome. Um, there are times when we go through Scripture where I don't have a clue what Paul is writing about. And so you have to just file some of these things away. Pastor Chuck used to say, I have to file this away and needs further information. And so in some ways you have to file that away in the needs further information department to fully understand what Paul is talking about. But I will give you just a little bit of what at least I think as I read through this verse and I studied through this. Now, first of all, note with me that angels are messengers of God. That's their job function. That's the role that they play. But they also understand uh, divine order. They have a very detailed understanding of the order that God has put on things. And in fact, when things get out of order, well, this is some of how it looked for Lucifer, Isaiah chapter 14. As Lucifer says in his heart, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And yet the Lord responds and says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the depths of the pit. And so as Satan in Isaiah 14 was lifted up with pride, he says to himself, I will be like the Most High. He had gotten himself out of order out of position, and the result was he should be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Now what John writes in Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, is it wasn't just Lucifer that were brought down, but actually one-third of the stars, one-third of the angels went with him. They made a decision right then and there to also lift themselves up. And so now we have the whole demonic realm that's created because they were cast down along with Lucifer. And all this as a result of them being prideful and getting themselves out of order. And as I read that, and I consider that, and then thinking about the angels, I can't help but wonder how many times I've been right there. It's really easy to, to look down the barrel of Lucifer and go, how dare he? But man, there's lots of times where I've put myself up on the throne. There's lots of times where I've thought, I, I think I'm the man. i got it all going on. I've got this whole thing figured out, and I'm swelled up with pride. I get this whole thing out of order. But understand, for the angels who Paul is referring to, they got one chance. They got one opportunity to make a decision. Are you going to go with the God of the universe, or are you going to follow after that guy? And for those that followed after that guy, they were damned for all of eternity. And so for these angels, they're looking at this thing and going, you ought to be careful about what you decide. But what we also read in, in 1 Peter makes this comment. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He says, To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things 
which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Understand that this thing that is our salvation, this unbelievable grace that God has given us, that He gives us over and over and over again, the angels, I mean, these are are created beings that are so magnificent that when we read about them in Scripture, people fall down face first and they they try to worship the angels. They wet themselves because of the angels. I mean, they're blown away because of the angels. These angelic beings, they look at our salvation and they are blown away. Like, I can't believe the grace of God. It is, it is magnificent the way He gives us time and time again, an opportunity to correct, an opportunity to get things right. This is what they look upon when they see our salvation. And yet, as Paul writes here in verse 10, beware of this authority because of the angels. To be mindful of this authority, what he is saying to me as I read through this is, don't take it for granted. Don't take the grace of God for granted. Don't, Don't cheapen it because we think we know better, we've got it all figured out, that we need to be so very thankful for the grace of God as we remember the angels. They don't have all the opportunities to uh, grace to what you and I have. Or that's not it at all. Verse 11, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. And so what we see is from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, I'll go back there for you, verse 20. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was found that there was not found a helper comparable to him. So as Adam is there in the garden, the Lord is marching past all the animals, past him, and he's saying, good morning, Mr. Cow, good morning, Mrs. Cow, good morning, Mr. Platypus, hello, Mrs. Platypus. All of them are being named by Adam as God marches them by. But as he finishes, there's no one there for him. And what he said in verse 18 is, look, it's not good for man to be alone. This This is not a good situation. And so... In verse 21, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said in verse 23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so what we find is way back in the Scripture, thousands of years ago, that the Lord performs this miraculous surgery on Adam. That he, he is, It's translated here, he, a rib was taken, but what it really means in the Hebrew is an entire side was taken out of Adam. A portion of him was taken away. Something that was so very vital that he was going to be drawn to this other person. And so she is then made into Eve and presented to Adam and he looked upon her and he said, whoa, man, I'm going to call that woman right there. That's, that's at least the way I translate it. He looked upon her and she was not just a servant, but she was a co-responder, a co-laborer, a help that Adam needed. 
she was right there alongside him. The two coming together actually became complete. And apart from one another, there was something missing. And so both are necessary. Both are vital. And what the enemy wants to do is he wants to isolate us and he wants to get in and destroy these relationships any way he can. He wants to destroy and disrupt this beauty of two very different people coming together to complete one another. Now, going back to what Paul is writing to, in a very specific way, we are called to lead as men. And so as men, and hopefully this doesn't offend you too badly, but um, you are called to lead, and so I'm going to tell you to start leading. To lead. To lead your family. To lead but not to do it in a way like a dictator would, where it's iron fist and it's my way or the highway. But what we're called to do is lead like Jesus led. And how did Jesus lead? But he was willing to lay his life down for those he loved. He was willing to put himself aside and so care for his people, for all of us, that he would allow himself to be murdered and killed for our behalf. That's the kind of love that Jesus had, and that's the love that we are in fact called to have as well. Now, if you haven't led like this, I want to just give you a little heads up. It's going to be a challenge. But if you haven't led at all, or you haven't led well, then when you start to lead like this, there are going to be things that come up that are going to be very difficult in the relationship. And in fact, this is a part of the curse. Genesis 3, what uh, God tells Eve is that that her desire is going to be to rule over her husband, but he's going to rule over her. And so there's this contention that exists because we get things out of order. And yet what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 relating to marriage and what it should truly look like. Ephesians 5 verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And so the call we have into this relationship is to love like that. To love like we do ourselves. And none of us, no matter whether we think highly of ourselves or not, the reality is we all love us some us. I love me an awful lot. I think about me more than I think about all of you. Combined. Put it all together. I think about me a lot. And what the Lord is saying is, this is how we need to love one another. We need to be thinking about our spouse in that kind of a way. And it's not just simply for us either. Because invariably, there's always other people involved. There's always kids involved. And you think about how many times uh, we look to invest for them, right? We look at uh, how we can invest in their future and in their college and what we can set aside for them and how we can leave them an inheritance. And we want to give them a bunch of stuff. But don't, uh, don't undermine a spiritual inheritance. That there is a value to be placed on giving them a spiritual inheritance. In fact, as husband and wife lead together, this is what Proverbs 22 verse 6 says is to train up a child in the way he should go and he will and when he is old he will not depart. The promise here in scripture that God gives is that if we train up our children in the way of the Lord, if we give them a spiritual inheritance when they get old, it doesn't mean they won't have some hiccups along the way, but but when they get old they will not depart. 
And so I would encourage you to press into the promise that the Lord has given us. So all this to say it's not to be demeaning or to diminish the role of the female in this relationship, but instead to be an encouragement as you actually get to come together and lead your families together. It takes all of us, it takes both of us working together in order to be complete. I mean, if you've ever seen a man plan anything, I mean, it's, it's a flaming disaster. You ladies know that. Like we, we need a strong woman to come alongside us in this manner. And so uh, be encouraged by that. Now, verse 13. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And so, in this section of Scripture, what Paul is writing about, and I'll get back to something I alluded to previously, is it's a a culture that exists around honor and shame. So in their culture, the way it looked for these Greco-Roman people, and again, this is how our country operated until probably 100 years ago, is it was an honor-shame culture. And what that means is your worth, your value, your honor came from by what other people thought of you. So if the group thought well of you, if the, the group provided honor for you, then you had honor. That you And likewise, if you brought shame upon your family, that, that then the group would decide if that was shameful. And so a person's worth wasn't defined by themselves, but defined by what other people's perception was of them. Now, the idea that we have of self-esteem, this would have been completely laughable to them. Like to, that you decide your own value yourself, that all your value is derived from within your person, and, and I am who I say I am. That, to say that in the Greco-Roman world, they would they probably wouldn't have even thought this up, but they certainly would have laughed you right out of the room if you would have brought that up. Now, this played out through family social statuses, through their lives, through how they worked and what they did, even how gifted they were as a speaker. Their status in society would be risen. Now, if you were one who was a slave previously, and then you had experienced freedom in one way, shape, or form, you could be elevated but only at a certain level. It operated a lot like a caste system. There was only so far up the social ladder. Even as a freed person, you were able to go in this Greco-Roman culture. And no one would have gotten outside of the bounds that was set. Otherwise, it would have been very shameful. And this included gender roles and gender identity. It would have brought a tremendous amount of shame. Now, fast forward to where we are today in our Western culture. The way we operate is very right and wrong, good and bad, black and white. And then we operate in some nebulous form of gray that really is defined by what I think. What I think. You do you is probably the way you could best term our current society. You do you, be you, be whoever you want to be. And so there are some good things in that because now no longer do you have to be held back by a caste system that tells you you can't achieve because what you know is in our world, if you work hard enough, pull yourself up by your bootstraps enough, you can achieve, you can excel in our society. There's a problem with this, though. Um, you don't actually define you. <laughs> it doesn't really play out. What happens when you define you in such a way that completely contradicts uh, nature or any kind of a real law? Or what happens when, as you're defining you and someone else defines them, you're in conflict with one another? 
See, because if I'm the God of my universe and you're the God of your universe, what happens when our two universes collide is a war takes place. There's no strong moral line to really define right and wrong if it's not coming from a place that exists outside of time and space like God's Word. Now, all that to say that as Christians, we don't actually exist in an honor and a shame society, nor do we exist in a society that we decide for ourselves where our esteem or our value comes from. But in fact, the word honor that's used in the Greek is the word uh, doxa. And the word doxa might sound familiar to you because it's where we get the phrase doxology from. A doxology is just simply a hymn of honor or praise. And so what we find is that as we exist in this newfound freedom we have in Christ, we receive honor, interestingly enough, by giving honor to the Father. As we give a doxology, an honor of praise, He then, by His grace, not by anything we did, He then gives us honor. He placed such a high value on us, this value coming from Him, that He gave His only begotten Son for us. And so there's a tremendous value that He sees, even if we don't see it. Even if my inner dialogue can't communicate that, He communicates that through His action. So what we see is we no longer have to worry about what the crowd thinks. What do people think about me? We only have to worry about what does the king think? What does the king of kings think? What does he say? And what Satan constantly wants to do, he started it from way back in Genesis 3, verse 1, the first time we see him on the scene, he wants to question that. Did God really say? Did God really say that? And so I encourage you to spend time in God's Word. What did He really say? What does a doxology truly look like? I'll give you a couple of examples with our last few minutes this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2, And the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, the God of my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You have saved me from violence. I will call upon the name of the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. He's our rock. He's our fortress. And as we communicate that to Him, what He provides is love and protection. And so we're encouraged as we give Him honor and praise. What Paul writes in Romans Chapter 11, uh, verse 33 is this. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, uh, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Who has given to Him or shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a doxology. I give Him honor and praise and glory. And here's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Continuing one last place in chapter 3, verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
And so what we see is we give honor, as we give doxa to him, his promise is to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or think. To give us glory. To actually give us who deserve no honor or praise to give that to us. Verse 16 as we wrap up. If anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And so what Paul concludes this section with is, if any of this is contentious to you, head covering, no head covering, here's the deal. We're not going to rely on customs and traditions. We're not going to get all worked up and get ourselves all tied up in a knot about these things because it's all to point to who is the main thing, and that is the cross of Christ. That for generations and generations, whole churches and groups that want to pick apart the Bible, they take one section of Scripture and they want to make the whole thing something legalistic that everybody must adhere to. And the reality is when we do that, we completely circumvent the cross of Christ. We completely miss Him who is the point. And when you look at the amount of Scripture that God spent on head coverings, it's about five verses we just covered. It compared to the amount of verses He spent on something like, I don't know, the resurrection of Jesus, the the price that was paid for our sins. These kind of things the Lord spends a tremendous amount of time on because He wants us to get it. He wants us to know that He is the point of all of this and that we can have an opportunity to be saved just by simply believing on Him. And so, Father, we thank You and we praise You. We give You all honor and glory and praise. Lord, let all of our doxologies be given unto You. So many times I want to generate honor and praise by my own flesh. And it comes up empty every time. There is no amount of honor we can receive from man that will not disappear at some point. And so then we live a life where we think we built up honor and praise and we find it it just evaporates because it's not rooted and grounded in you. So Father, let our honor and our praise go to you. And Lord, any honor you want to bestow upon us, what we know, we have faith in is that it's going to far exceed anything we could ask or think or imagine. And it's going to last for all of eternity. And so I'd way rather have honor like that, Lord. So we give it all to you. Father, help us to see our value resides in you as individuals and collectively as a group. We lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen.